Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. With me today is Professor Elizabeth Shesko of Oakland University. Her book, Conscript Nation, Coercion and Citizenship in the Bolivian Barracks, explores the militarization of Bolivia over the course of the 20th century, leading up to the dictatorships of the 1960s and 1970s. Shesko shows how compulsory male conscription, which liberal and conservative politicians hoped would modernize Bolivia and assimilate its indigenous population after the Civil War of 1899, in fact transformed the country, fundamentally entwining civilian and military life. Conscripts and reservists made new cultures and networks of patronage, as well as new kinds of claims on the government, especially in the wake of the disastrous Chaco War against Paraguay in the 1930s. Her work explores how military intervention in politics became normalized by the 1960s, despite an official ban on politicking for enlisted men. Finally, Conscript Nation offers a window into the everyday lives and social worlds of Bolivian men who made up the armed forces from the turn of the century to the era of national security doctrine and Cold War counterinsurgency. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, first, I'd really love to hear how you came to write a book about the Bolivian military. Yeah, it was kind of a mystery to me as well. <laughs> um, I became interested in Latin America in college, really, as I think most of my students do with outrage when I learned about U.S. intervention in the region. Um, and then I sort of fell in love, right? I, I studied abroad in Chile. I traveled throughout South America then. That was my first time in Bolivia um, was like a two-day, three-day thing uh, back in the late 90s. Uh, so after I graduated college, I just wanted to get back to Latin America. And I ended up teaching first grade at the American school in Guatemala, which was a fascinating experience because I was teaching all of these very wealthy children um, in a very, very white and wealthy children in a very indigenous country. So I came started asking some questions about what it means to be indigenous within a nation state, especially states where indigenous groups are close to the majority, like Guatemala, like Bolivia. Um, And then I started grad school in 2005. So Evo just been elected. And that makes me part of this generation of scholars, this vibrant community that you're part of as well, of people who are rethinking what Bolivian history looks like. Um, and so no, no whiff of military there at all. Um, then I did my master's research on the indigenous Congress in 1945 in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. And I mostly looked at newspaper coverage and I was really struck at the prominence of the discourse about veterans, right? Have how many people were mobilizing their veteran status, um, as part of this Congress. So that's sort of where the beginnings happened, 
the next summer I spent reading widely for my comps and I happened to be doing it near the gates of a military base and seeing my partner go to work every day in a uniform. So suddenly as I was reading, I was noticing military service everywhere, right? In anthropological accounts, in the history of the Jesus de Machaca uprising, right? So I started thinking about the military then. Um, so then I went to Bolivia to see what kind of military, military records I could find. I first thought my project would plan to have, would have a lot of oral history in it because I couldn't imagine I'd get a lot of written access to a lot of the written records about the military. But then on my first trip, after several weeks, I managed to get into the military historical archive. Uh, I found these military justice records and I was really hooked. So the project really formed around the records that I was able to find um, because I had all of these questions about military service. And those questions really started about indigenous people serving in the military, but evolved into kind of a much broader project. And those are some, there's some really great sources in your book. Like I can see how you would have gotten hooked with all the, all the sort of questions that you can come to and the details that you can find in those. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, conscription and citizenship, because in your book, you make an argument that universal male conscription, which in some ways claims to be a great equalizer among men, was actually a project to to reduce the power of the political power of indigenous communities in Bolivia, among other things. So can you talk a little bit about how conscription worked and what it, how it relates to citizenship? Yeah. I mean, conscription, as we think about it in all parts of the world, is really about a state asserting its power, its power over particular bodies, its power over its national territory, and its power over its neighbors. So it's very much a state project to have more control over its citizenry. Um, in most places, too, conscription is about assimilation. It's about bringing mostly young men, but with the idea that they'll have a trickle effect back to their communities, to their families, into the state, making sure that they speak the same language, making sure that they have the skills that the state wants them to have. Um, so the dream of conscription is very much this top-down um, assimilation project. Um, and so that's really a pattern over time with military service in Bolivia, um, from the liberals who started it to the military socialists to the Rosca trying to stave off reform in the 40s and to and then to the MNR as well and through probably to today um, that they want to form the population they want to govern. Um, and that means indigenous assimilation. So that means taking power away from indigenous communities. And that's what the liberals are doing in uh, the early 1900s is trying to get the power away from the allies that helped them the indigenous allies that helped brought them to power in the, the Federalist War, the Civil War, whatever you want to call it, in um, the 1898, 1899. Um, and so they have this idea of universal conscription, but of course the Bolivian state is never going to be capable of forcing everyone to serve or even if everyone magically decided they wanted to go into the military, the state would have totally lacked the capacity to transport and care for and uniform 
all of those young men. So while it, the idea was that it was universal, certain populations were targeted. Um, and in the early in the early 20th century, that the idea was that indigenous people would serve, but in in reality, most of the people who were actually presenting for service were the urban classes. Um, so people who had more connection to the state and in very rural areas, you know, someone might be picked up on the street kind of randomly and brought into the military as an omiso, someone who had failed to register for service, but it was very spotty and random. The Bolivian state just did not have the reach into those rural areas. Um, and so one of the things that emerges in your book is that, um, there's, there's a lot of literal state building, like quite um, quite physical, practical infrastructure building that the military conscripts end up performing, building roads, building schools, building their own barracks. And so one question I had was, how, how sort of typical is this for um, a military in the early 20th century? It's very typical for a military in the early 20th century. It's probably exaggerated in Bolivia because of the lack of resources, um, but the idea that military people are doing a lot of what I call non-martial labor, right? So labor that isn't for any particular clear um, war-making or violence-making service, um, but really labor that the state should be paying other people to do um, gets done by by military conscripts. So it is pretty typical. I think it is exaggerated in Bolivia because of the lack of resources. But um, we tend to think of soldiers as doing only, well, first of all, we tend not to think of soldiers as workers at all. Um, but there is definitely a movement to start thinking using the lenses of labor history to think about soldiering throughout the world. Um, and particularly to think about the type of soldiering that doesn't involve a weapon, that doesn't involve marching, um, but that involves building roads, right? Because we can think of road building as a labor that's very necessary for military maneuvers, right? You can't get your army from here to there without roads to move them, right? So you have zapper units that make roads throughout throughout history. Um, but in Bolivia, it, it tends to be used for less martial purposes and more kind of state building purposes. Um, and as I argue, show in the book, there is definitely a racialized component to who tends to be doing the more abject manual labor, right? Um, Urban conscripts who are literate are much more likely to end up with a weapon in their hands doing marches and drills, and rural conscripts who don't speak Spanish are more likely to end up doing that manual labor. In thinking about building a road as a way of perhaps performing um, military maneuvers later, in, in the case of Bolivia, the territorial anxieties meant that colonization or even just planting um, crops in the lowlands was understood as defending territory on some level, right? That this, this, the, in Bolivia, there was this very profound anxiety about not having settled and colonized space sufficiently. Right. And the military is seen as a solution to that. 
the your population density in Bolivia has always been quite low compared to to other to neighboring states, um, and so you find successive governments being like, "Oh, we need to fix this problem," and then often they turn to the military to fix it, mostly because the military in the 20th century in Bolivia tends to be the best functioning institution, right? The institution with the clearest claim to a national reach. Doesn't mean it really did, right? But it's it, it can make those claims. And so the military can find ways to say, hey, we can be useful here, we can be useful there. Um, so there are, you know, the, the, in the early 20th century, the Bolivian ministry is the ministry of war and colonization, right? They're joined um, for a certain part of the early 20th century, and then they become different and colonization goes in different areas at different times. Uh, but there are definitely efforts to build military barracks out. And those were the worst places to serve, right? Nobody wants to be at Puerto Heath, right? Up in the, up in the, in Beni, um, because that's, there's no infrastructure there, right? And service is pretty miserable and desertion rates are incredibly high. Um, and then that becomes back as a very powerful force of military colonization um, during the MNR period um, in the 50s and the 60s that they're, they're very prominent about talking about military colonization and using conscripts to expose people to other parts of the country and to settle this territory. Um, because people don't live there, not enough people live there, um, or the people who live there are indigenous people who have much less connection to the state. Um, so there's tremendous anxiety about colonizing these spaces so they don't lose them again, right? Because Bolivian national history is a history of territorial loss after territorial loss after territorial loss, because there isn't, the state doesn't exist in those places and the people who live there don't feel connected as Bolivians to the state. I think that's a very good place then to segue into the Chaco War, um, which it would be impossible to talk about Bolivian military history and territorial loss without talking about the Chaco. Um, and I suspect many of our listeners, if you're not a scholar of Bolivia or Paraguay, might not know very much about that conflict, but it's a, it's a huge it looms incredibly large in Bolivian historical memory, but it is also a big deal in terms of one of the largest, it's the largest territorial conflict in South America, right? It also has an important role in military history because of um, taking place between the world wars. Um, and so a lot of the kind of things that were tried out in the Great War um, and then kind of the new mechanization of of warfare and of air power, all kind of the Chaco War is a bit of a testing ground for a lot of that that then gets changed again in World War II. So the Chaco War also holds a, an important place in, in kind of more, uh, you know, some people may characterize me as a military historian. I've never kind of thought of myself that way. Um, but I had to read a lot of military history to, to do this project. And um, the Chaco War is definitely important in that as well. So it looms very large in Bolivian history, um, as well as some other historiographies. But anyways, the, the, board, the Chaco War was a border conflict between Paraguay and Bolivia um, from 1932 to 1935. But you really see kind of the first flame of it in 1928 um, 
when the Chaco War actually could have started but didn't. Um, it's it's really fought for economic and political reasons. Paraguay, after losing a huge percentage of its population and its territory in the War of the Triple Alliance, is looking to settle this region. There are a lot of Mennonites who come to live in that area. They're doing cattle ranching. Um, and they're really sort of starting to colonize an area that was really only populated by indigenous groups before then. Um, Bolivia, for its part, is looking for access to the Paraguay River for exporting, right, because of its landlocked status. Um, Bolivia also has a president, Daniel Salamanca, who is in pretty bad shape politically and decides that starting a war might be a good way to bring people together. He thinks this war will be very easily won by Bolivia. Bolivia's army is much bigger than Paraguay. Bolivia is a much bigger country than Paraguay, has a lot more resources than Paraguay. So he doesn't think this will be a difficult war to win. And of course, it is. <laughs> um, it does not work out as he hoped. Not at all. Um, and part of that is because Bolivia is poorly manages its war, right? I mean, it has many different um, people in charge at different times. It's constantly changing leadership. Its leadership is pretty decadent. Um, it's also fighting a war very far from its population centers. So its supply chains and the, the way it has to move soldiers and move supplies is it, it's very difficult. Um, also, Bolivia opts for limited mobilization at the beginning because they think this war will be easily won, whereas Paraguay is all in mass mobilization from day one. Um, but they do fight this war, and it's fought in a very arid region, very dusty. Um, but when it rains, it becomes this complete mud pit. So it's just an aw it's very hot. It's an awful place to fight. And actually, when I was doing this project, I um, did some research in Paraguay. And I decided from getting back from Paraguay to Bolivia to take the bus route through the Chaco because I was writing about this war and I wanted to see the area. Um, and it is it was interesting. I mean, most of the route was at night, so I didn't quite see as much as, as I would have liked to see. Um, but it is a it is still a, a very lowly, low populated region and a very difficult region to live in, uh, mostly because of lack of water sources. So um, the Bolivians who died in the conflict, most of them, I mean, we can't really know exactly the numbers because records are not at all clear, but a huge number of them died from uh, dehydration and from waterborne diseases rather than from the actual fighting. Um, but this is a huge conflict in Bolivian history just because of the mass mobilization. Six to 12 percent of the population ended up being conscripted or drafted and fighting in this war, um, about 160,000 to 250,000 men, 50 to 60,000 died. It was incredibly expensive, created a huge amount of debt for the Bolivian state. Um, and so it really profoundly changed Bolivia's society. Um, it massively accelerated the reforms that kind of, and, and, leftist ideologies that were already circulating in society, it really accelerated that process because all of these um, for 
um, formally educated men either go into exile during the war or they serve. And when they serve as subaltern officers or as foot soldiers, they see what their country looks like. And their country doesn't look anything like what they've been living in La Paz or Cochabamba or um, Sucre, right? I mean, it's their country is much more than these kind of small urban areas where they've where they've lived. And so they come back with a very different worldview. Uh, however, the worldview of the many, many men who come from rural areas who are pulled from their communities into the front lines or building roads in the rear guard, um, and also their fathers, mothers, wives, children, right? All the people they left behind, that it really changes how they understand the world that they live in because of this wartime experience. Let's talk a little bit about one of the major threads in your book, which is the intertwining of of politics and military cultures, right? Political and military cultures. And in many ways, barracks cultures become forms of political organizing and, and claims making at different moments. And I think the the results of the Chaco War is one of the linchpins in this story. So can you talk a little bit about how um, how military service allowed for new kinds of you mentioned um, Bolivians understanding their country in new ways, but there was also new kinds of ways they could make claims upon their country, too, as veterans, as you saw at the very beginnings of your research. Especially as veterans, they're able to make new claims on the state. Um, they have a new sense of entitlement, right? We we died for this country. <laughs> That's always a really powerful discourse to say, you know, either we died or our husbands died or we lost our eyes, we lost our legs, we sacrificed something for you, we need something in return. Um, so it gave a new sense of entitlement and uh, it actually kind of in many ways, paradoxically, I think, allows the state to become much stronger, right? The state becomes stronger in just trying to administer the war. But after a failed war, you would expect a rejection of the state and the military that failed you um, and that failed to win and that didn't protect you. Uh, but instead, what I found was that more people are invested in military service, that there's a massive increase in compliance um, because of the weight that veteran status carried. Um, because men are able to make demands on the state by claiming um, their veteran status. And many of these claims are, are the same kind of claims they've always been making, right? My neighbor took my land, um, protect me from, from this, that, or the other. They're very local concerns, but they're able to pull the state in and the state is complying and responding in a way that it didn't. Right. Men were trying to make these claims and getting the state involved in the 1910s, but the state was just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, we're not dealing with that uh, unless someone with a powerful connection got involved. But in the 1940s, you find men writing petitions to the state saying, here's proof of my veteran status. Here's the problem I'm encountering. Please help me with it. And it doesn't always work, but it sometimes works. And that's enough to get people more involved, right? So more people end up complying with the idea of military service after the war than they did before um, because of the newfound 
power that veterans have. Um, and that's kind of a, an important point is that, as we talked about earlier, Bolivia is never able to really have anything that resembles universal service, universal mail service, as it says in the law, but it does. Um, so it ends up being a lot of self-selection, right? Who thinks that military service will bring them benefit? So it's a combination of self-selection and just bad luck, right? That you're, you happen to be there when the military patrol gets by and you're just kind of forcibly conscripted, um, which is much more like the older system from the 1800s, but it continues throughout right up to today in some ways, right? I mean, my, a, f- a friend of mine who was a missionary kid in Bolivia in the eighties remembers that he'd have like their, they'd have their church van and they would stop before a checkpoint. Everyone who hadn't done their military service would get out, walk around, they'd go through the checkpoint and then they'd all get back on. Right. And so there are all these ways that people get out of serving. Um, but because it's this combination of just bad luck and forcible conscription and people voluntarily choosing to comply with the law, um, that's part of what makes military service so strong. And it becomes much, much stronger after the war because more people know about it and more people think it might bring them some sort of benefit. Yeah, that is a really, it's a really important process, I think, for, for how Bolivian men um, see themselves in relation to their country. And so let's go then to talk a little bit about how gender shows up in your work. And if we're talking about universal male conscription, what does that do to family life in Bolivia and understandings of gender and citizenship? Yeah. And this one I would say is like all you reviewers out there, this is the weak, one of the weaknesses in the book. So please feel free to call me out on it. Um, there's a lot of gender here, but it, it, it could be done in a much stronger way. Um, and I'm really hoping that in future research, someone will do much more work, right? Leslie Gill wrote an article many years ago that, that explores masculinity in the barracks, especially among men in El, El Alto, um, in the, I think in the 1990s, but there's so much more that could be done with the gender dynamics of conscription and the gender dynamics in, in the barracks. Um, Interestingly, when I first started this project, um, I had a quote, I started it with a quotation that's not in the final book um, from Basilia, who was a a woman in the mines that June Nash interviewed in the 60s or the 70s. And she has this really interesting moment in her in her interview where she has this imagined plea to the president um, about like why her life is so difficult. Um, And so she talks about how she wanted to serve in the Chaco War, um, but she she couldn't because she was a woman and that she didn't have a son to give to the war. And she really does use that language of giving a son. Um, And then she says, perhaps it is for this that I have suffered. For this reason, I did not have rights because God did not want to give me a son to defend the country. And that's a really powerful way of thinking about how women access this form of claims making and it has to be through men, right? And how it's cut off to them because they can't serve. And yes, women served in the war as nurses and doing doing other roles. Um, but 
the number of men versus the number of women who have claims to serving in the Chaco War is just astronomically different. Um, and so this this idea of claims making is cut off to women except as mothers and as wives. And so there is a very gendered dynamic of citizenship that comes out of military service, even before most people who are serving in wars or in the standing army are really considered full-fledged citizens, right? I mean, a big concept in the book is this idea of citizen soldiers, which is a a much older concept. Um, And the the innovation I kind of have here is the non-citizen soldier, because most Bolivians who are serving for the time that I'm looking at weren't literate and didn't own property. So they were, they did not have citizenship rights, but they still saw military service as increasing the kind of rights that they might have, the kind of claims that they might make. Um, And so women are definitely uh, cut off from this in particular ways until much later when they start including women in military service. But it's, of course, never obligatory for women. It's it's an option, right? You can choose to uh, participate, but the numbers are just far, far, far lower. Um, The other way that gender comes into the book is very much in in the, the barracks cultures and the kind of masculinities that develop in the barracks cultures and how they clash with one another. Um, because one of the things I'm really thinking about is the idea of discipline and authority and how different ideas about manliness clash um, when you're working out those ideas, right? Because the state has this idea that everyone is going to have this governmentality and they're going to follow hierarchy and follow orders. But then you're bringing the men that are doing military service prior to the Chaco War are more likely to be educated, more likely to be literate. They need this paperwork for some reason to conduct their lives. Um, And so they think of themselves as thinking citizens and they don't want the kind of harsh punishment that, that is happening in the barracks. They think that's that's taking away their manliness, taking away their citizenship. They don't want to be treated like the indigenous people in the countryside, which is how they see themselves being treated in the barracks. And so you have this clash of, of kind of different ideas of what it means to be a good man, right? Is being a good man, this um, aggressiveness, this, this assertiveness, or is being a good man, being a good citizen and following orders and serving your country? Right. So those different ideas about masculinity are clashing and they're clashing with officers, too. Right. Officers know they need to follow the rules, but when someone questions their masculinity, they often just react with force, which is not supposed to be the kind of punishment that's permissible. Um, But of course, you know, what's permissible depends on who's enforcing those rules. So in the military justice records I looked at, there's a lot of instances of physical violence being used and then conscripts saying that's an abuse of authority. You can't attack me in that particular way. Um, And you also just see sexuality being used with gendered taunts and um, 
you know, you get a lot of 18 and 19 year old men together. Um, these things are going to, to surface, um, but they only come into the, the state records in kind of small ways. Um, but you definitely see kind of men calling themselves Margaritas um, and talking about how kind of cadets are not masculine enough because of their class status. So a lot of different ways masculinity is being used. So it seems like um, the military and barracks culture in particular is both a place where class hierarchies are being, in some cases, forcibly reasserted, but then also profoundly transformed and profoundly challenged. And so that ends up playing into some of the political transformations, the seismic political transformations that Bolivia undergoes in this period. So can we talk about the 1940s and this, the kind of... Um, and Radepa and the and the the officers that come out of the Chaco War and and how we get to um and how we get to essentially the the revolution of 1952. Yeah, the, I mean the Chaco War transforms everyone, right? So you have a lot of officers. Radepa particularly is uh, Razón de Patria, um, a group that forms in the prisoner war camps in Paraguay. Uh, they're very influenced by leftist ideology, they're, but they're also very profoundly nationalist, right? As you can tell from their, their um, the way they name themselves, right? With this idea of everything for the patria. And patria is a difficult word, right? Sometimes you see it translated as fatherland or as motherland um, because, of course, it's padre, right? Patria, but it's it's gendered female. Um, so I usually leave it as patria because I don't think you, you can get the whole idea of it from, and fatherland of course has other connotations from, from Europe that are important to kind of understand because Radeba also was accused of fascist leanings. Um, but still have a particularity to Bolivia. So anyways, you have a lot of officers who really profoundly change their worldview because of what they're exposed to in the war and because of the ideologies that were already circulating long before the war um, that get amplified by this wartime situation. And so they come back thinking, you know, we need to profoundly change our country and the way to do it is to take it over, <laughs> um, which is a consistent theme when you look at military officers in many parts of the world, but maybe particularly in Latin America. I don't know. I haven't done enough of the comparative work to understand that of the idea that only we can save this country um, and we can only save it by taking it over and running it ourselves. Uh, and we'll see this, I think, as we talk a little bit more about, about 1952 and about the dictatorships that come after. Uh, but this consistent idea that only us in the military, these, this privileged group of small group of officers can, can fix whatever ails the country. And so Radepa comes back, it's a secret lodge, so it's, it's, not something that's out in the open, but more and more officers are joining it. And then you have um, the the short period where the military socialists are in charge, which is David Toro and Herman Bush. Um, and then 
in the 1940s, you have Radepa actually taking charge of the country um, under Gilberto Villarreal, uh, who's in a coalition with the MNR, right, which will um, become a major force in Bolivian history with the revolution and continues as a political party up to today. Um, so you have this alliance in the 1940s between these military reformist junior officers and these new political parties that have formed. Um, some of some of them formed before the war, more of them formed after the war with the by kind of middle class and upper middle class and in some cases, upper class men who see the war and say, we need to profoundly change our our society. So um, in 19, from 1943 to 1946, uh, Radepa is basically governing the country um, and trying to make a whole lot of reforms that they can't really carry through on. So that's sort of a precursor to 1952, but it really shows us how involved military officers were with these reformist trends, right? With the military socialism and then with um, the, the Villarreal administration. Um, and so the military is at the center of this idea of reforming society. It's interesting because military socialism and this kind of military reformism is a is a really strong current in Latin American history in this period. I mean, you see military socialist uh, coups in Chile and and even thinking about Guatemala, but it gets a little overshadowed because of the later dictatorship period where predominantly right-wing dictatorships. But but this idea that we should be we know what's best for the country and maybe what's best for the country is a radical revolution, but we should be the ones to do it. Right. So we can keep it in line. And of course, if you if the military intervenes, there there's always the ability that they will um, you know, shoot dissenters, right? Like once you've trained someone to to follow orders and kill, uh democracy is maybe not high on their list. But um <laughs> but yeah, in this period, a lot of the a lot of the really sincere attempts to to make the country more inclusive come from people like um Villarreal or or other members of the military um but that carries with it a lot of complications because Villarreal has a, a, a has a complex legacy I would say. indeed he does yeah and i i kind of waded my feet into understanding their ideology um and did not did not feel very successful. Um, so, like, parse, maybe plural ideologies, right? <laughs> so, parsing out like what is the fascist influence, what is the nationalist influence, what's the Marxist influence, right? All of those pieces is never very clear. And I hope someday someone will make a very will, will do. And I think um, Vargakowitz is working on on some parts of this, but a, a much better understanding of of what that administration means, because it is so incredibly important to the development of the MNR, which of course is then very important to all of Bolivian history uh, since the 1950s. Um, but yeah, no, I think your point is, is a really good one that our understanding of Latin American militaries has been overly determined by continuing to wear Cold War goggles, right? To see everything through that, Kind of Cold War ideology of um, 
you're either communist or you're anti-communist and there's nothing impossible in between. Um, and that the military militaries throughout Latin America often have very strong leftist strains and the idea that reforming society does not just mean serving the oligarchy, does not just mean serving our own interests, um, but might mean uh, profound change. And I think a lot of that does come from especially juniors officers' exposure to troops, right? I mean, if you're thinking about it, people who graduate from the military academy come in as basically second lieutenants, if you're translating into our U.S. military terminology, and they're working directly with these conscripts who change over every year, right? And they see who comes in, they see for good or bad, right? And depending on their whims and their personalities, they have these men's lives in their hands. Um, but they understand a lot of their problems too, if they care to listen. So they, that contact with the troops actually does give them a little bit more of a perspective on what the country looks like than politicians might have. Um, and so that's part of what gives them the authority to say, I know what's best because I know these men. But of course, that's profoundly paternalistic as well, right? It's saying, I can speak, I, I was their officer, so I can speak for them uh, rather than letting them speak for themselves, which of course gives us a, a good eye into how all of these administrations' failings. Let's talk about 52 then, the, the, the nationalist revolutionary movement that takes power in 1952. And I, I guess I'll start with, with the sort of first version of the story that I heard when I was um, first getting into Bolivian history. It was like, um, you know, you have these worker and peasant militias that take over the government on behalf of middle-class politicians, some of whom were involved in, um, some of whom had been military officers radicalized in the Chaco War, the aftermath. Um, but, but what I had heard initially was the MNR abolished the military, was very skeptical of the military because they hadn't joined the revolution. And so but that's not precisely what actually happens after 52. Can you talk a little bit about what actually does happen and how the military transforms and survives um, in the aftermath of 1952? Yeah. And the story you heard is exactly what the MNR wanted you to believe, right? right, right. Um, that was their narrative was that we have destroyed and rebuilt this army because that'll then it now it's the people's army now we control it it's it's the revolution's army and so they they changed a lot of the window dressing on what mil, the military looked like or military service looked like um, to kind of co-opt it and say this is this is ours now um, but I think that fundamentally came from from two sources one is the MNR's anxiety about leading a revolution that they couldn't govern, right? The anxiety about yes. not, <laughs> yes, not being able to control the forces that they had unleashed. And they needed a military that would directly report to them and to supposedly be loyal to them rather than the militias that they, that were created, right? They, they didn't create these militias. These aren't the MNR's militias, the militias, are the mining militias, their factories militias, their, their, their 
indigenous communities uh, and peasant communities militias. And they may be loyal to the MNR in a particular moment, but that does not guarantee loyalty over time. And of course, if we look at the history of Bolivia, the being in charge of the government doesn't mean the military is loyal to you over time either. So, you know, they didn't have great choices, but they, they wanted to keep particularly um, Hernando Siles um, and um, Hernan Siles, sorry, <laughs> I always get him in his, his, uh, the presidential ancestor confused. Um, his, uh, his family members, similarly <laughs> yes. named family members. Indeed. Um, and Victor Passos and Soro, they, they both were afraid of losing control of their revolution and they felt the military would be part of it. So a big part of the continuation of the military is that fear. The other big part is that you had military officers involved with the MNR from back in the day and up to and through the revolution. They just weren't in the military at that moment. Right. And so if you look at the officer and this would also be an interesting study for someone to do. And I think we really need a study of the officer corps. Right. What I was trying to do had some elements of what officers look like. Like you can't look at conscripts without thinking about officers, but I wasn't really looking at the officer corps. And so understanding the dynamic of how the officer corps works, the socialization that happens in the military academy, the factions that that come out after, I think would be really a really important contribution to understanding Bolivian politics more generally. But the um if you look at the role, the officer roles, there's just a constant political choice to retire people, right? To take them out of the military because they're too threatening or they're involved with the wrong faction. And then you reincorporate them later. So there are many military officers who are distinct allies of the MNR who are in exile with them, right? And that was one of the more fascinating things that I learned in the process of researching the chapter on 1952 was that um, Rene Barrientos, who will eventually overthrow Victor Paz in 1964, is the person who flies him back from exile in Argentina, right? And to me, the poetry of that is just too perfect. That's fascinating, <laughs> yes. Um, and so... There are all these officers who are sympathetic to what the MNR is doing and are actively involved in it. And so the idea that you would just disband their institution is is pretty ridiculous. What the MNR does instead is really cobble it, right? So they do exactly what everyone's done before, is that they discharge a huge number of officers that they see as in the opposition. They discharge a lot of conscripts. When I was looking through... One of my sources was at the Ministry of Defense. They have everyone's um, conscription papers, right? So like their um, their paperwork that says their name, their parents' names, where they're from, right? All this information about them and their and about their service, like what kind of training they received. And for huge numbers of people in the class of 1952, there's a big stamp that says discharged with insufficient instruction, um, because they just let most of the people who were in the standing army at the time go. So they drastically reduced the army. They drastically reduced the army's budget, but really they allowed it to kind of cobble along and they kept their allies um, 
in the officer corps as important pieces. So the, the army definitely emerged quite changed from 1952, but there's never a point when there is no army. Um, and there's never a point where there's a fundamental rupture in the officer's military culture. In terms of numbers, the militias vastly outnumber the military and the military would not have had much of a chance against them um, at least until 1956, 1958, right, is, is kind of the, the tipping point. But, um, but they're, they're never gone. And I think that's a really important thing to understand when you're thinking about the continuities in this history. So let's move then towards that tipping point. How does the how does the military rebuild and um, how does Barrientos uh, fare over the course of this decade? Yeah, I mean, the military rebuilds because of institutional pride, uh, because of self-interest of officers, um, but really because of ch- political changes under especially with, after stabilization, right? So in 1956, you have the stabilization package. You have Siles, who is a, is a little more conservative um, than Paz had been, and he needs support. And so he turns to the military. Um, and, and military, excuse me, military officers are feeling, you know, left out, right? And many of them are thinking, well, we were fundamental to supporting this revolution, its ideology, and we can barely put uniforms on our conscripts' backs. We can't pay for anything, right? I mean, there's a profound economic crisis throughout Bolivia and the military suffers much more um, than some other, some other sectors um, in the early period, right? Especially prior to stabilization. Um, and so the military kind of, because it's not, it never loses its institutional memory and its institutional culture, it's able to kind of wend its way back. And of course, you have Cold War ideology coming into this too, and a profound fear of communism and the idea that, that militias are going to be a hotbed for communist organizing. And so you start seeing, well, you continue to see factionalization, factions developing among the, the officers. Um, and they're fighting to, to kind of take over. And then Silas turns to them and says, you know, this is what I need to keep my faction of the MNR in power and to keep other forces in check. And so over time, the military gets a lot more resources and the militias get a lot fewer and eventually kind of become much less powerful. Um, and then Barrientos is just, you know, part of it is... I wouldn't dispute the thesis that a lot of it has to do with his force of personality. He's just a very charismatic person. And he develops his Quechua language skills much more. And that was something else I really interesting. I learned from Thomas Field's work is that, you know, we always read about Barrientos as being fluent in Quechua. And from what I can tell from what Field says, that's not true, right? He he has some Quechua and then he works really hard on making it better because he wants to develop this mass following. And right, he works really hard to get a lot of people on, on his side. Um, 
And I think we just, we have to understand that as, as many ways a continuation of the revolution. Barrientos was always an MNRista. Um, and maybe he did it for real conviction. Maybe he was an MRista because it would bring him to power. We would need more research to kind of ask those questions. Um, but he certainly does not represent a return to the oligarchy. He's, he's a populist. Um, and so he kind of works his way into power through a lot of manipulation, through a staged, very likely staged assassination attempt and gets himself as vice president and pretty promptly overthrows Victor Paz. But at this point, the revolution is petered out. There is not, I mean, there is very little popular support for um, the official MNR by the time that the, the, the that the coup happens. So I, I tend not to think, and I think I agree with many Bolivianists here of 1964 as the key turning point um, in many ways, I would say like 1956, 1958 is kind of the key when, when CLS moves towards the military and more conservative forces of the MNR are able to take over. I see that as more of the rupture than the 1964 coup. I mean, I've seen in my work in mining communities too, that in 1964, there's, there's a fair amount of popular goodwill for the idea that someone would come in and try to restore the revolution. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily end where they hope it will end, but, no. <laughs> but yeah, the MNR has lost a lot of credibility by this point. And, and there is a precedent, there is absolutely precedent for military officers coming in and saying, yes, we'll make this better. Right. And part of this is also a longer story of rural incorporation into the Bolivian state. Right. Um, because if you look at kind of the conscript lens, you know, up until before 1952, most conscripts who come in, the majority of conscripts who come in have some claim on literacy. Um, they're people who need military paperwork because they're already more connected to the state. And the process of, of expanding that happens after the Chaco War, but it really the tipping point to having more rural people serving in the army happens after 1952. Um, so it's a very long process, but the kind of gestures that the, the MNR makes towards universal citizenship and towards inclusion and all of that happens, uh, changes who is in the military. Um, and so you get... Barrientos cultivating the peasant population because now they can vote, right? I mean, they always could, some numbers of them always could vote, uh, but there's a huge change in, in, in who matters um, because of the structural change that the MNR makes from the top. Um, but that's reflected in the conscript pool and that's also reflected in, in, who, in who matters in Bolivia. Um, after 1952. Barrientos-style populism is really only possible once um, there, there's been a number of structural changes where there are just vastly more rural people who are intimately involved in, in who gets to make decisions in the nation. Right. And certainly you saw that in earlier periods, right? Rural people who probably 
according to the law, shouldn't have been able to vote were voting, right? I mean, in the 1910s and 1920s, you definitely see manipulated elections and accusations of the mob um, coming in because people were being told how to vote and were voting then. But the numbers are just vastly different after 1952. Let's think about how your story of the militarization of Bolivia and politics helps us understand, or, or maybe even think a little bit differently about how dictatorships came to be in Bolivia, and then thinking comparatively about more broadly Latin America, because 1964 is also the time where um, you have military coup in Brazil, for example, and, and certainly the next 18 years of dictatorship in Bolivia mirrors, if not exactly, mimics um, many other countries throughout the Southern Cone and in Latin America. Where, where does your story go from here? Yeah, I think it's important to think about Bolivia's dictatorships as not being institutional. Um, it's always about the individuals who are looking to be in power and seizing power. However, you have to understand them in the larger context of what's going on in the Cold War and what's going on in Latin America um, and of U.S. support for the military. Right, Part of what brings the military back in Bolivia is a lot of funding and assistance from the United States training at the School of the Americas and the kind of the U.S. role that's here. But I think we can't overemphasize the role of the U.S. either. Um, you really, to understand dictatorships in Bolivia, but I think anywhere in Latin America, need a better understanding of the inner workings of the officer corps. At no point in Bolivian history is the officer corps ever unified about anything, um, except maybe getting some more money, <laughs> right? Um, there are always secret lodges, there are factions, there are friendships, there are, are different groups that are kind of working things out um, on their own and they have different political beliefs. They have different ideologies. Um, I mean, Bolivian politics really needs to be understood about as being about personal relationships between a small number of people at the top layers of society, right? They all went to school together. They have cousins, they married each other. They're cousins with each other. They married each other, right? There are all these connections that happen. Um, and those in many ways transcend political leanings. Um, you, you have some sort of relationship with someone who has profoundly different ideas than you do. Um, and that that's part of understanding the officer corps is understanding its relationship with the other political layers in, in, in Bolivian society. Um, so to understand Bolivia's dictatorships, you really have to understand those officers' relationships with one another. Um, and not enough work has been done on that. I mean, Gary Prado's work really needs more, um, a more careful reading because he's, and we really need to start interviewing all of these officers too and getting their stories before they die um, to understand how that worked and to understand each, each piece of it. Um, and Bolivia's dictatorships range from like profoundly leftist to Garcia Mesa, right? right. Um, Speaking of cousins overthrowing uh, each other. <laughs> yeah. They, um, and part of the story I think also is just in over the course of the 20th century, the state 
is more and more successful at having institutional authority, right? Like having um, the military builds itself up, it gets better weapons, the roads are better. You have a central state being able to impose more, in certain ways, violence or in central control over citizens. Um, and and so a military dictatorship looks really different in the 1930s than it does in the 1970s. Because of that state capacity. Because of the MNR, too, which right. was very committed to building that. But it also looks very different because of ideology, right? Because of the yes. that you can't understand any of the, the dictatorships without understanding the Cold War piece of it. Um, and the institutional support that they're getting from the United States and from other dictatorships in the region. Um, and so that is profoundly changing the military culture of the officer corps, um, especially when you go get training elsewhere, right? So it's not just the military academy now, which was kind of where the institutional culture was set for officers before the Cold War. Now it's about all these schools that are set up for military professionals in the United States and Panama and in other parts of the world. Um, so the institutional culture is 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 becoming wider, right? It's 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 becoming less Bolivian. It's still Bolivian, but um, it has a lot more influence than it would have had in previous decades. Let's jump forward then. Um to talk a little bit about contemporary Bolivia, because you start your book um, by talking about Evo Morales and his um, his relationship to military service. He was he was a conscript, um, and um, in this current moment, of course, since um, since you finished writing your book, Evo Morales has been. Um, taken out of office. And one of the things that happened that led him to resign his position was a general who had been Mas supporter um, suggesting that he resign. So can you talk a little bit about um, the sort of continued resonance of military service and also where we are in Bolivia right now? Yeah. And actually the, the Evo left office the day my copy edit, the, the day like my page proofs came back. Oh, that's <laughs> and so that... I had just written like right before my page roofs came back. I had just written this long email, being like, "Has has it been set yet? Can I make an edit just to acknowledge what's just happened?" And then the page groups came back, and I was like, "Nope." <laughs> um, and in some ways, that's good. Like it gives me some more time to to kind of process it and think about it. Um, and this you know work of history is set in the time that that I wrote it, um, which was before. Evo left power. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the fact that Evo could so successfully use his military service in his campaign really shows us what military service has come to mean in Bolivia, right? And how it's become, in some ways, domain of lower class Bolivian communities in urban areas, definitely, and in some rural areas, right? There are still parts of Bolivia where no one or one or two people have done military service, but it's not part of the community. But part of what drove me to this project was reading anthropological accounts from like the 60s and 70s, where they were talking about 
indigenous men coming home from military service and them having specific rituals that they would do with the military service booklet and about how men couldn't really marry and serve in communal posts unless they had their military service booklets. So understanding like how this had become in many ways embraced by the community and conscription is a coercive mechanism. Um, but the Bolivian state has rarely had the coercive power to enforce it across the board. And so people have to comply. Um, and these communities had clearly embraced it in their particular way. And what I come to argue is that it's useful for them. But it, that is that really resonates with how Ava was using his service in his initial campaign, but also throughout his presidency, he would invoke his military service to prove his patriotism and to contrast it with, you know, elite men who had gotten their military paperwork in other ways, right? Rather than doing the most authentic, manly, Bolivian thing you can do, which is go into the barracks and withstand the the privations and the abuse that one suffers there. Um, and that becomes a marker of citizenship. It becomes a marker of, of manliness. And so, and it's a class signifier as well. So Evo is able to really successfully mobilize his own service for those reasons. Um, and we see that in the long lines that are, that, to enlist in most in the most prestigious units, right? Every year, the Colorados or any of the units that that are seen as where you want to serve have huge lines, and not everyone's able to get in. Um, so this is state structured coercion, but it's successful because people want to do it. Um, that doesn't mean it has the same meanings for everyone. Um, and it's interesting, kind of reading a little bit about how the Moss government talked about Avo's connection with conscripts early in his, in his administration, that he was kind of going and being shoulder to shoulder with conscripts, talking with them, understanding them. And in many ways that reminded me of Bautista Saavedra in the 1920s, who had this sort of personal connection to troops and saw that as sort of a, a fail safe against officers who um, might not support his administration. Um, but at the same time, just like with Saavedra, Evo had an officer corps that was very wary of his ideology, of his class status, of his of his um, rate of of who he was and his connections to indigenous culture and identity, his connection to the Cocoleros. Right. All of that made a lot of officers very nervous. Um, and of course, the military was not a spending priority for the government. Uh, they did not buy off the military. They did not buy off the police. Um, and so the military, once you have AVO in 2019 with a critical mass of people who felt like what he was doing was undemocratic and unfair. The military was not about to go out and squash those protests like they did in 2003 with Goni and that ended so poorly for so many officers, right? Many of them were tried and imprisoned for those killings. Um, so the military was not about to support, keep this government in power. And so I, I don't know enough about General Kaliman, um, but certainly he was seen as a mass loyalist. And I think he probably found himself in a situation where 
a critical mass of the office corps was not willing to support Avo anymore. And he felt like the only thing he could do was what he did. Um, but it is very much a continuity in Bolivian history for the military to pressure um, the government. But we're seeing a break here because, of course, the military did not take power. Right. right. They did not say and, and I don't even, I don't know, I don't know enough about what's going on right now, but I don't even really see them as governing as puppets behind the scenes either, right? I think they are determining what's happening in Bolivian politics in some ways, but they are also trying to maintain this idea of institutionality and being in the barracks. But I don't know, like we're going to need a lot more research into understanding what's happening at this critical moment in Bolivian history um, that many of us are missing because of the coronavirus, right? People yeah. aren't taking these trips. They aren't understanding what's going on. And so the narratives are very, very polarized and very shaped by people who happen to be in Bolivia right now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's very much a continuity in Bolivian history to have the military step in at that critical moment. Um, but we also see see a break in that for so many decades, right, from the 1930s, the 40s, the 50s, the 40s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, um, you see military men in power. Assuming the presidency, right, which right. is which is different. And right now what is going on is far more complicated in some ways because of that. And so that you can never count the military out of Bolivian politics, but I think its role has changed. Um, and we'll see what that means going forward. We'll see what role the military tries to take. And it's just so difficult to study because it's such a closed institution. Um, and so understanding what current officers are thinking and doing and the decisions they're making is really hard to do unless you have some sort of personal connection. Mm -hmm. I I just want to say um, to sort of conclude that this is it's a really great book. It's full of really um, vivid details and um, stories about people's lives, and I think it's it's um, incredibly helpful for understanding this part of Bolivian history. Um, and I think our our listeners will really enjoy it. Where are you going next? What's what's your next project? What will you? What is the question you now want to answer? Yeah, um, well, it's it's on hold right now because the uh, coronavirus. So many has things are <laughs> robbed me of research time and childcare and all of that. But um, I'm doing one final piece of this past project that I'm trying to finish up, which is an article on race in the Bolivian military and thinking about how the state is recording racial identity. Um, and so I'm kind of looking at those state records and understanding how it changes over time and the contingency of recording um, race, especially when there's supposed to be an official silence on it, right? It's supposed to, there's this very liberal idea of, of kind of colorblindness and saying, you know, we're not going to say that this person's indigenous, but of course they're saying it all the time. Um, so looking at that kind of the, how the state is solidifying ideas about race through military records. So that's something I'm trying to finish up now. But the next project, which I haven't started researching, I'm hoping to start researching in winter 2021 when I have sabbatical, but who knows what the travel situation will be like then, um, is looking at the militias that come into being after the after 1952. Um, because when I was writing the chapter on the revolution, 
I was like, okay, well, now I need to do some research on these militias so that I can understand uh, their size and who's in them and what they look like so that I can contrast with them with the military because understanding the military after the revolution is really, you have to understand the militias. Um, and so I started doing research and I was like, oh, there isn't work on this. <laughs> um, like it's mentioned here and there, but no one's really done a study that helps us to understand what these militias militias are and understanding the bigger picture of not the mining militias, not the peasant militias, where there's a lot of really good work developing from Jose Gordillo and, and um, Bridget Werner that understanding kind of the bigger picture of the MNR militias, the factory militias, like what do these look like? Um, so that's what I'm hoping to do next, but it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's still a pipe dream. I haven't been able to really dive into the research yet and figure out how, how viable it is, but because the militias were such an important face of the revolution to the world, right? Part of what makes the Bolivian revolution look so revolutionary is the miners with guns, right? You know that. <laughs> um, and so I think your work will really help us understand some of this too, but I'm hoping to do something that's that's kind of the bigger picture of what the militias look like and what these paramilitary forces mean, um, not so much in their relationship with the military, but their relationship with violence and with these weapons um, and with the MNR state. But Well, um, thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate you giving uh, so much of your time 